This morning, people, can I tell you what? That was an awesome time of worship this morning. That was, that was good, right? Yeah, I see you nodding back there. I'm in the back, which is awesome because it means I can get my full Pentecostal on back there and, and nobody can watch me and laugh. And if I were in a Pentecostal church, based on what I was doing back there, like my Fitbit said I got 10 active zone minutes when I was back there, they would have handed me a flag and just said, all right, you're the flag guy at our Pentecostal church. And so that was a great worship set. That encouraged my heart deeply. So uh, my name is Matt. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, I just want to thank all of you for being here at Redemption Church today, whether you're here for the first time, been with us for a while, you're watching online. Love having you here and love having a group of people that are committed to this idea that we as people are very imperfect people, but we have been redeemed by a perfect God. That's why our name is Redemption Church. And, and then from that, our heart is to help other people believe that life is better with Jesus. Not always easier, not always cleaner, not always simpler, but always better. And, and so much of this is just rooted in this person that we see as God who came into the world 2,000 years ago and changed everything. And so for the last three years, we've been investigating his life, but now we're nearing the very end of all things. And so the next few weeks really kind of pull it all together and remind us what we're called to live out and who we're called to live as. And so with all of that kind of stated, I want to remind you that we have an app. App has all kinds of great information in it, including notes that you can follow along with this morning. So if you'd like to do that, that would be great. If you don't have our app yet, just go to the app store, whatever app store you use, type in Redemption Church Duval, It'll pop right up. You'll be able to get the app and follow along with this, get archive stuff, everything else. But today, I want us to just kind of settle in a little bit. Uh, it's a celebratory day, uh, the text we're looking at, the story we're looking at. But I want to settle our hearts, give us some space for prayer here a little bit. And then from that, you know, we'll kind of have a few moments where you can pray silently. I'll pray with all of us together, and we'll jump right into Luke chapter 24. So let's go ahead and do this. Jesus, there is so much that we are to be grateful for, so many things that you have done in our life, for our life, for the flourishing of the world. And I pray that not only do we show excitement for that, enthusiasm, thankfulness, and gratitude, but that also in that we will take seriously and joyfully seriously what it is you call us to do so that we can continue to be a part of how you are reclaiming all things, how you are bringing life to the nations, flourishing and blessing to the nations. That was your promise at the start of the story. What you did in this world it just galvanizes that concept, and then you invite us to be a part of the process of seeing that continue to perpetuate as we share your good news and life in you because of your good news. So I pray today that our hearts are attentive and ready, and from that we are, again, just bursting with enthusiasm and bursting with worship for all that you've done. And so, Jesus, we thank you and we praise you in your good and perfect name. Amen. So today we are uh, cresting out of Luke chapter 23, and we are merging into the final chapter after all this time, the final chapter of the Gospel of Luke, which I love it because the final chapter in many ways opens up a whole new chapter of which 
we are still living in the midst of. And so, uh, as we joked last week, Luke has a prequel, which is his gospel. He has a sequel, which is Acts. The book of Acts ends at chapter 28, but it doesn't end. It continues on to this day with people like you here in this room and in other churches all over the world living out this great commission, this action of God to reclaim the nations. That's the heart of the story. But here in Luke, where we're at, for the people that were living that story in real time, at this particular section of the letter, it's not so optimistic. In fact, at this particular moment in the Gospel of Luke, as chapter 23 is ending, we want to be clear of the scene. Jesus is dead. He's dead. So with that, the dream is dead. Their fellowship is dead. And the whole movement that they've been a part of for the last three years it is also dead. And so as the blanket of night stretches across the landscape that Friday evening and the Sabbath begins, we find the cast of characters doing different things. We see in the Gospel of John that the 11, that core group that followed Jesus, had the most access to what he said. They're hiding in fear. And then the women who followed Jesus subsidized his ministry. They're at least still thinking about what's next to come that he's died. And so they quickly rush home and they're preparing spices to anoint his body. They couldn't do it on Friday because the Sabbath came too quickly. So they're planning that first thing Sunday morning, they will go to the tomb and they will anoint his body for the process of burial. Now this process actually has stages to it. Right? And sometimes we don't realize in the ancient world how this works. And so basically what would happen normally is somebody dies, you wrap them in linen, you anoint their body for their first phase of burial. But there's phases, right? So that would be the first phase. And they are placed in a tomb and they sit on a shelf and they decompose a little bit. And then you take the body and you move it to another location and it decomposes some more. And then you move to another location and it decomposes some more. You don't leave it in the same spot because to decompose in one spot for too long has too many other risks. But also in their culture, every time you're taking the body and you're moving it, you yourself are rendered impure according to the law. So it's not just enough to go, move the body, leave. You have to go, you have to move the body, you have to go through this whole ritualistic cleansing process. And so every time you touch death as a living person, you are reminded of the stench of death. You are reminded that death comes to all, and death is not the plan of God. It is the heartbreak of God that every person in the world must face, both in their own demise and the demise of people that they love. That is the process. And so it goes to this final end where finally the body is so decomposed Composed, all that's left is bones. They put those in a stone box, and then the stone box is placed to rest in its final spot. Death unto death. And that's just the pattern, how it works. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust. You came from the earth, to the earth you return. And so from that, it raises the question, if chapter 23 reveals that Jesus died, then why at chapter 24... Like, why do we need closure in this book? We know the end of his story. It's the end of all people's story, at least so we would assume. And if Solomon says death is the end of all persons, then, man, we could just dispense with any final closing thoughts, right? Well, Luke's like, no, there's a, a last chapter. It's a last chapter that changes everything. 
And as we dive into chapter 24, I love the last leg of the story, in particular for how it begins. It starts with this impactful, jarring, slam everything into reverse word, a three-letter word that is beautiful. It's the word, but. But. I like big butts and I cannot lie, right? We like them. We like them especially when they're designed to say, you know what, you think it's going a certain direction, but, 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 but. Maybe it's going a different direction. So chapter 24, verse 1. But early, very early, on Sunday morning, the women went to the tomb, taking the spices that they had prepared. They found that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance. So they went in, but they didn't find the body of the Lord Jesus. Now, what's interesting to me is when we look at the different gospel accounts of the resurrection, they are incredibly divergent. If you look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you're seeing each writer come with a completely unique angle, and they get into details, and they highlight things that are sometimes really different than the other guys, right? So it's really amazing. So, for example, the gospel of Matthew. If a modern movie director was writing that ending, this would be like Michael Bay, right? Like, you know, the, the guy that does, like, you know, like, all the action explosive movies. That's kind of like the way Matthew does it. So he's like, there were guards stationed at the tomb. It was sealed with a Roman signet. Then suddenly an angel descends from heaven. There's a great earthquake. The stone is ripped away, and the tomb is empty. The guards faint out of fear, and eventually there's a conspiracy led by George Soros and the Pharisees to prove that Jesus didn't rise. Like, that's the way it feels. It's pretty cool, and I always wanted to be like a trailer guy anyway, all right? So when you read it, you're like, wow, that's a lot of stuff. This is this glorious angel and this great earthquake, and man, it's just epic. But then you have the Gospel of Luke, and he approaches it a little bit more like Taika Waititi or Wes Anderson, right? It's just a very subtle, meandering, curious, where's it going? It doesn't have all the sensationalism. It's, it's just like, man, this is a, a mystery that's whimsical and, and, and kind of unfolding in our midst, and so if anything, if Matthew is explosive revelation, Luke captures this as more of a slow burn illumination, right? We're just easing into the stories. And so the women have headed out. They expect to find the tomb with a stone across it because all tombs would have a stone across it because you didn't want the odor of decomposing bodies to come out. So that was common, Luke doesn't get into the fact that it was sealed, that the guards were present, any of that. Luke just skips all of that. And he just says, hey, they're expecting to find a sealed tomb. They're going to need somebody to open this for them so they can anoint the body of Jesus. But then they get there, and it's strange, because the rock has been moved, and they look in the tomb, and they see nothing. And so at this moment, when they see nothing, it's like their temporal lobe's like, oh, I'm recalling history, I'm remembering what he said, I have some emotions, I got some sense, and then the amygdala grabs a hold of all of that and washes over their consciousness with a very simple emotion, curiosity, confusion, right? Fight or flight, what do I do with all of this? What's going on? In fact, it says in verse four, they stood there puzzled. The emotion just ruptures onto them. What is going on? And then it says, two men suddenly appeared to them, clothed in dazzling robes. This is where their amygdala really kicks in, and the women were terrified. And they bowed with their faces to the ground. Now here's what I think is just curious to me. The very first contact with the resurrection account for these women 
doesn't stir faith or comfort, does it? What does it bring? It brings confusion, concern, question. Like one of the natural questions is, who are these two dudes suddenly? Well, here's the two dudes. First point in your notes. They're the messengers of revelation and reminder. They're there for a purpose. Now, uh, normally, naturally, and I think probably, uh, these two men are actually angels, right? So uh, other gospel writers talk about angels showing up. Luke doesn't use that word. He chooses to say these are two men in dazzling robes. I think the odds are they're probably angelic, but there is also the possibility they're, in fact, men that are messengers, but, but this isn't outside of the scope of Luke's gospel. If we go way back to chapter 9, sometime when your high school kid was in junior high, right? Back, back then. When we look there, we see that there was this moment where Jesus peels back his humanity. He reveals his deity. We call it the, the moment or the mount of transfiguration. And there, two men in dazzling robes come to visit Jesus. It's Moses and Elijah. And they're there to talk to him about his departure that is to come cross and the resurrection so while the men aren't named it wouldn't be surprising to me if these two men are actually old testament individuals like moses and elijah they've already shown up before in dazzling robes it wouldn't be surprising to have them show up again and say finally the fulfillment of the law and the prophets this is it now we don't know that for sure it's speculatory all we know for sure is that there's two individuals on the scene in dazzling white robes. Who they are is less important as why they've arrived. And they have arrived to pose initially a question. It says, then the men asked, why are you looking for the dead? Or why are you looking rather among the dead for someone who is alive? He isn't here. He is risen from the dead. Now, we read this as Christians, we're like, right, that's the moment where it all changes and transforms everything. I'm like, yes, but when I read this too, I laugh a little bit inside. Because this is the first account of gaslighting to me in the Bible, right? Like, they're looking at the women like, why are you here looking for Jesus? And they're like, are you kidding? Because he died? <laughs> because we saw him laid in this tomb a couple of days ago? Because this is where you put dead people? Are we crazy here? We're not crazy here. He died. We saw. We saw him laid here. We saw the tomb sealed up with him. We're not crazy. But, but could this be true? Is this story to be believed? See, this is where their brains are going to instantly start to race. And, and I love the fact that the way the messengers put this is just like, Wait, why would you go to a graveyard to find a living person? You know, it's like, it doesn't make any sense. It's a strange place to start looking. But I'm sure for the women, they're like, well, is it? Is it? Could it? He was here, but now he's not. And I mean, he's not around anywhere, but, but maybe this is the thing. Is this possible? No, this is impossible. Could it be possible? Maybe it could be possible. Are we being punked? Is Ashton Kutcher going to come? You know, like any number of things they could be thinking and feeling and wrestling through. Now, what's interesting is from their religious heritage, they did believe in resurrection. This wasn't uncommon to the Jewish culture. 
but they thought the resurrection was something at the end of time where it would be a universal resurrection where everybody's brought forth from the dead. They never fathomed this idea of a single person way before the final resurrection who would be risen from the dead. That did not compute. Now, what's strange is it should have computed based on something we're going to see in a minute, but it not registered in their mind. So they're just absorbing the scene, trying to understand it, and they're like, okay, these guys show up, he's gone, they say he's risen, and their brains are working overtime. Now, with this, I, I want to stop for a second in the Gospel of Luke, and I want us to have a little bit of an excursion. Right? I want us to go sidebar for just a second. And in the sidebar, I want to do two things. I want to make a note, and I want to note a point. I'm going to make a note and note a point. The note I want to make is something that all four gospel accounts share when it comes to the resurrection. And what all four share is that all four do not share the exact moment Jesus went from death to life. It's kind of fascinating. Right? What we're given in all the accounts is the after effect. No one in all the Bible records this moment in the darkness where his eyes open, he pulls off his linen sheet, sits up on the edge of the ledge he is on, and walks out of the tomb. Nobody records that. Nobody. So in this strange sort of way, it's the brilliance of the Holy Spirit leading the gospel writers that says, faith has mystery. And we're going to leave that a mystery. The only parties that seem to know are Father, Son, and Spirit. They're there for the moment. The rest of us, we get to see the after effect. And from that, we continue to live in the power of that after effect. But that's the point I wanted to make, right? That, that right there, or at least making that note, um, what you have in the resurrection, the actual moment of is bewilderment and mystery. It's a puzzled, hope-filled thing. And we just get to see the fruit. But then I want to go ahead and note a point. And this is a theological point. And the point here is, why the resurrection? Right? If the cross is the apex of the story, at least as we understand it, and Jesus cries out, it is finished at the end of the crucifixion, then why is the resurrection important to us? Now, we could certainly look and go, well, it's important to Jesus because it rose him from the dead. So it's like humanity gave the verdict guilty and you shall be killed. And God's like, I'm going to reverse that verdict, man, because I'm, uh, I'm, I'm God and humanity is not. And we're going to change this up. And sure, the resurrection can make perfect sense for Jesus. But why is it important then for us? Or is it important? Well, the answer to that is yes. Now, last week when we were looking at the cross, we posed the question, what is the cross doing? right? What's its activity as Jesus is there on the cross? And from that, we looked at this graphic of this kaleidoscopic view of the cross. And so all of those different swirling colors grab a hold of different theories on this atonement or at one that Jesus creates between us and God by going to the cross. And so in one sense, he defeats Satan. In another sense, he's our substitute. In another sense, he is our redeemer. In another sense, you know, he is the scapegoat. And so there's all these different theories, and they all capture a piece and they probably miss a piece because the cross is so much more dynamic than we can fathom. I think it's why Paul says, hey, you know what? It's a mystery. Some stuff we get and some stuff is just too big for us to get. And so it's kaleidoscopic, right? And so that's what the cross is doing. But then here's the truth that we have to absorb. 
And that is this amazing moment, the cross, this thing that we love, cherish, and worship God for is incomplete apart from the resurrection. In fact, we can go a step further. And we can say that without the resurrection, the cross, its activity, its work, its all that what's going on, cancels out. Now you might be saying, Matt's a heretic. No, Paul's a heretic. Matt's just quoting him if I'm wrong. Because here's what Paul says, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If Christ has not been raised, then your faith is useless and you are still guilty of your sins. I didn't say it. Paul said it. The cross, for all of its beauty, for all of its sacrifice, for all of its grace, for all of its suffering, if Jesus doesn't rise, it really doesn't matter. So, so when you look at it that way, what you begin to realize is that it's a symbiotic relationship. The cross and resurrection, they have a cycle that they are completing. And they continually reinforce one another in the imagery of it. And so there in Romans chapter 4 that you see on the screen, it says that he, Jesus, was handed over to die because of our sins, and then he was raised to life to make us right with God. So this is where you see that, that symbiotic nature. And I want to be clear here. This is a very simplified way of understanding it, right? There's a lot more dynamic and nuance, and there's some overlapping that can happen here. But Paul does us a great favor in that passage. They say the cross, man, it deals with the sins of the Christian. And the resurrection, it imparts life and righteousness to the Christian. And, and so they work together. You don't want one without the other they're a relationship. And, and, and so God intends both of these to be held dear by us. And not just to recall how we are rescued, but then with that to also mobilize us and inspire us to live a certain way based on the fact that we've been rescued. In Romans chapter 6, verse 11, up to this point, we read the passage actually for our kind of call to worship this morning where Paul's talking about the cross and resurrection and what it does and how they kind of work in tandem. And then from this, he says to us, he says, so you also should consider yourselves to be dead to the power of sin because of the cross and resurrection and alive to God through Christ Jesus because of the cross and resurrection. And so not only are we rescued by these two things that God does, but we're reminded by these two things. That every single day, we, we die to ourselves. Jesus says this back and again, Luke chapter 9. If you want to follow me, deny yourself. Take up your cross, which is die to yourself, and follow me. But in doing that, remember, I've given you life. I've given you power. The same power that rose Christ from the dead is the power that works in you and in I every single day to live out this life in a victorious kind of way. And so that's where we want to be reminded. The more I die to myself, the more he lives in me, and that resurrection power transforms my person day by day by day. But this is why Paul even said in his own life, I die daily. And he did that so he could sense greater life and greater power. See, this is why I say life is better with Jesus. When we die to ourselves, we sense the life of him in us. And that is far better. And so that's why resurrection, right? He has done this for us so we can live this way through him. What I also appreciate about just taking a moment for this excursion 
is it does say something to us as Christians and our symbolism, right? So often, what's our symbol? The cross, right? But, but what the scriptures reveal to us is that our symbol really is cross in an empty tomb. In fact, the early Christians, they didn't use the cross as their symbol. They used a dove or they'd use a fish. They would use ships blowing in the wind. They used anchors. They had all sorts of different imagery but I think that's because they knew that really it's the two symbols combined that is the gospel message. And so if anything, if you wear a cross around your neck, you should add a little tomb. That'd be perfect, right? Because that's the cycle. That's the story. That's the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're a movement where our sin has been forgiven, but we're also a movement of the empty tomb where life has been provided. So, Leaving the excursion back into our story, we left off with the women. They're puzzled, they're terrified, they're bowing to the ground, and their brains are just like, is he dead? Is he not dead? Is he risen? What does that mean? And what does that look like? And who are these guys? And what's happening? And everything else. And in the midst of that, one of the men continues to speak. And he says, Remember. Remember. If you actually have an analog paper Bible and a pencil, remember that. Circle that word, remember, right? Remember what he told you back in Galilee That the Son of Man must be betrayed into the hands of sinful men And be crucified And that he would rise again on the third day So they're now recalling something that has been said Now Jesus has said a lot of things over three years But among the lot of things that he said He said this relatively often Like in the Gospel of Luke, there's three different occurrences where Jesus says, okay, everybody, you got to understand, we're going to Jerusalem, I'm going to get beaten, I'm going to be crucified, but I'm going to rise. So he's said this many times. And many people were listening to Jesus as he said these things. The 11 listened, the women listened. But the difference is they didn't hear. And there's a difference between listening and hearing. And Jesus says this, right? He says, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear. Which means there's a special kind of hearing. And up to this point, the men weren't hearing it. The women weren't hearing it. Seemingly nobody was hearing the story. That is until this day. And I love it because when the dots connect, it's with a very particular group. It's the women again. Number three, it's the women of remembrance and witness. This is so great. Verse eight. Then they remembered. It doesn't say, oh, their eyes were illuminated. And they're like, oh, right. He talked about that a bunch. Right? They remembered that he had said this. So they rushed back from the tomb to tell the 11 disciples and everyone else what had happened. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, the, uh, it was Mary, the mother of James, and several other women who told the apostles what had happened. So it's a whole collective of ladies that have prepared him for burial. Now they've shown up to get it all done, and something different's happened. And what is so cool to me about this is that the first messengers of the good news that Jesus the Lord has risen is a group of women that in that culture they would say women are not to be witnesses. In their culture they said you can't trust the word of a woman. She shouldn't testify in court. Uh, they're easily deceived. They're gullible. And yet God is a scandalous God. 
And everything Jesus has been doing is to show this upside down, backwards kingdom thing. And so I'm sure everybody's like, uh, you can't trust a woman to give the message. And God's like, watch this. I'm gonna have a whole group of women be the first ones to become kind of like the apostles to the apostles. Apostle means messenger. They're like the messengers to the messengers. Love it, right? The whole story has been margins. A criminal dying gets saved. A Roman soldier just crucified him gets saved. And now a group of women who can't be messengers become the messengers of the good news. And so the men, while they're hiding in fear for what could happen, the women are rushing to tell a story with joy because of what has happened. There's no what ifs for the women. There is just this thing to share. But what I love about what Luke is doing here too is he's establishing kind of a pattern. Right? You might not always see it on the surface, but Luke is notorious for patterns and rhythm and kind of using the number three. Like he's trying to teach at more than one Level And so what you see as a pattern that applies to all of us is pretty simple, right? Jesus spoke his word. Then these women remembered his word. And then from that, they go and they act on his word. That's the pattern, right? Jesus spoke, we remember, and then we act on what is remembered. Pretty simple. But there's another layer to this story. They are acting on this, ready? In faith. I want to be really clear right now for a second. We have a tendency to look at the story right now and say, oh, well, these women have seen just undeniable proof Jesus is alive. Have they seen undeniable proof that Jesus is alive? I've not seen that in the story. Have you seen Jesus appear anywhere in the story so far? Has he talked to the women yet? Has he said a word? Has he shown up in physical form? No. The women come to a tomb. There's two men, it says. Shiny, but men. And they say, don't you remember what he said? He made claims. And they're like, that's right, he made claims. And even though they're not seeing him, they believe the claim. And they, they believe it so much that they then act in faith. In other words, what Luke embeds into the story is that for those of us who believe in the risen Lord, it's really always been a story of faith at its core. That's a good thing, not a bad thing. Now, eventually, they're going to see Jesus, but as they're on the run, when they leave that space of the tomb, they've seen nothing, they've heard a thing, they've remembered a thing, they believe the thing, they're acting on the thing, and in faith, they go to share the thing. The Jesus is risen. That's still our story. That's a story for all Christians in all time, right? And so these women of faith go and share what they've heard and remembered and had others testify to them. They're going to go testify as well. And so they go to number three in your notes, the men of doubt and disregard. They come to the men, guess what? Jesus is risen! It says, but... The story sounded like nonsense to the men, so they didn't believe it, right? What are they thinking? They're creatures of their culture. Oh, women, witnesses can't be trusted. Gullible suckers, they're over-emotional. They've all got together. They're making up stories. This makes no sense. It's nonsense. and Just disregard, right? There's a certain snarkiness to their, their spirit and tone here. But one... One of the 11 hears this 
and, and, and something sparks. It's number four. It's the apostle of resurrection, what if? What if it's true? What if it's possible? What if this isn't the end of the story? What if it's a new beginning to a whole new story? What if this is the case? And so while the men are blowing off the women and thinking this is a silly, silly story, it says, however, Peter jumped up and ran to the tomb. And there he looked. He stooped down, he peered in, and he saw an empty linen wrapping. And then he went home again, wondering what had happened. I want you to soak in that for a second. It doesn't say he left worshiping. It doesn't say he left whooping it up. It doesn't say he ran as a witness to the other 10 guys and said, guess what? It's true. He's risen. None of that is there. What you're left with as Luke closes out this scene is confusion and curiosity. And so, back to the pattern for a second. Messengers come, and they testify, Jesus is risen. He was dead, and now he's alive. And then from those messengers, different ears hear different things. The women hear and believe. The men hear, and they doubt. Peter hears, and he wonders. But you know what? That's true for every human being that faces the gospel, right? All the categories are covered. If we go out as a messenger and we share, hey, Jesus came into the world and he is God and he died for your sins and he rose from the dead, some people hear that and they believe just like the women. And they believe in faith just as the women did when they left the tomb. They're moving in faith. Others, they hear it and they wonder, could that be true? Be cool if it's true. I don't know if it's true. I kind of wonder. I need to know more. I need to understand it better. I need to just kind of see where this takes me. They wonder. And then some people, they doubt. You're nuts. People don't rise from the dead. That's dumb. That's always been the way of the gospel. And that's okay. Because at the core of the cross and resurrection is a faith concept, a faith statement. We come to the story in faith. When we share the gospel with people, we're not giving airtight facts that are undeniable. Nobody can afford anybody that. But what we can come with is life transformed, life mobilized, and say, hey, by faith, my world was changed, and he invites anybody to that same faith so that their life might be changed too. The gospel is a message of faith. Our religion is a religion of faith. But sometimes faith is far more powerful than just attesting to the facts. And so, what this faith is all about is a faith to hear his word, a faith to remember his word, a faith to act on his word, and then the faith to go and share that word with others so that they too might believe. They may not believe. They might just wonder for a while. That's great. God can work on that. And some may doubt, and that's okay because I've met plenty of doubters that are now believers. And that's okay. For us, it just means we carry the message of faith as we live the fruit of that faith. Right now, I want to encourage everybody to just take a moment to just maybe close your eyes and bow your heads and find kind of a, a, kind of a quiet space around you, or maybe if you're watching online, the same thing. And, and I just want to give a, 
hopefully loving, encouraging challenge to all those categories, right? For those who believe, um, my heart and prayer for you is to enjoy and live in the power of the resurrected living Lord. Again, Paul says this in Philippians. He's like, I want to live in the power that rose Christ from the dead. He's not talking about he wants to one day be resurrected, though that's true, and he says that elsewhere. But right there he's saying, I want to live every day in the same power that rose Christ. That's resurrection power given to us. That's our life in Christ, where Christ can live through us. If you are already a believer, my prayer for you today, and the prayer I would encourage you to even make right in your spot, is God, help me to live in your life-giving resurrection power every day. Let me die to myself, live to you. Right? That's, that's what I encourage the believer to pray quietly this morning. Maybe you're a wanderer like Peter. Could this be? It might be. I don't know. It'd be cool if we live forever. That'd be awesome and live with God. And all, like, you're, you're wondering, well, my encouragement is, hey, uh, man, if you feel like your wonder is, is moving toward, I believe this, lean into that. Lean into that and say, all right, Jesus, I, I know I, I've done a lot of dumb things in life. I know I've sinned in a lot of ways. Forgive my sins. Step into my life. I want resurrection life with you. You pray that with your words, with your heart, and, and God is eager, right, to hear that. Luke tells us earlier that all of heaven rejoices when somebody goes from death to life, when they repent and see things different and follow God. And maybe that's your story today. And maybe some in the room or some watching, you're, you're like, I just, I'm sitting in doubt. The only encouragement I'd give is test the doubt. Just say, God, I don't know if you're real, I'm not sure, but just, if you're real, do something. Work in me, show me something. Move the needle in my life. Maybe just taking the risk of that kind of prayer, right? We're all on different spectrums of the journey here, right? But, but God is always attentive to all of those places, and that is where I encourage all of us to step into where he's attentive. Jesus, I thank you again for your story. It's a story of faith, but it's real. Just because it requires faith doesn't mean it's less concrete, less real, less authentic. It's perhaps more real than anything our brains can fathom. And so I thank you for mystery. I thank you for faith. I thank you that you loved us so much. You became our servant. You let yourself be enslaved by humanity to be murdered by humanity. And then you in that forgive humanity and rescue and give life. We thank you, Jesus, for your grace and goodness in your name. Amen.